Ray Marcus. What's going on, Ray? It's the episode we've been talking about since before we were a podcast, even. This is true. This is one of the episodes that we've been most excited to do. I'm like grinning ear to ear right now. He is. And that's because this is the episode about the one and only sweet Marvin Gaye on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. Let's get it on, Ray. <laughs> I'm ready, man. I'm so excited to talk about Marvin. Just the music, the energy, the voice, the charisma, the chaos. It's like this one big explosive ball of beautiful, insane magic. I know you've been waiting a while to put that all out there. And I feel you, my brother. Before we jump into it, let's remind everybody that this edition and every edition of the Balanced History of Rock and Roll is brought to you by Crooked Eye Brewing in the heart of Hapro. They've got the cure for what ails you since 2014. So I think we have to go back to the beginning, to the humble roots of Marvin Pence Gay Jr. And his birth name and his father's name didn't have the E on the end. Born in April 1939 in our nation's capital. But it wasn't a happy life. Not anywhere near a happy life. A very hard life. A life filled with shame. A life filled with embarrassment. A life filled with sadness and pain. And the backdrop of all that kind of surprised or fooled some people because there's his father, Marvin Gaye Sr., who is a a church minister. And his mom, Alberta, is a domestic worker. She cleaned other people's houses. She was actually the main breadwinner for the Gaye family. The father didn't make a lot of money when he was doing his ministry work. And then after he became, um, I guess... The right word is he basically quit the church because his ego was crushed about not being uh, made a deacon or a bishop of the very strict religious church that they were following. And the church went with the other deacon or uh, the other religious leader. He started pulling back from the church and he became angrier and angrier and it festered and he would hold a job for a couple of weeks and then he wouldn't. He had a great job as a chauffeur and he blew that, started drinking a lot. It was very abusive too. And in the religious universe that I'm not particularly fond of, none of it, really. And this was in a small slice of what we would consider the religious universe. It was a Pentecostal church that his dad was in the middle of when all this went down called the House of God. And it took its teachings from the Hebrew Pentecostalism, which is like super strict on every side, right? Absolutely. They did not do anything on the Sabbath. They were not allowed to do anything. That Sabbath was such a strict holiday for them. And Marvin Gaye Sr. made his children and his family live this strict Christian life at home based on the teachings. You said the word children. I want to mention that Marvin was the second oldest of the couple's four children, two sisters and one brother, Frankie. They also had two half-brothers, Michael Cooper, who was his mother's son from a previous relationship, and Antoine Carey Gay, born as a result of his father's extramarital affair. So you're dealing with a minister, first off, who had some other goings-on and some strange proclivities, according to history, not according to you and me, right? Yep. These are definitely according to history, and it was talked about in the book Divided Soul by David Ritz, and then I'm sure if you find articles about it online, Marvin Gaye Sr. was a cross-dresser. Right. And I think because of the conflict within himself over his sexuality, we saw it with Rosetta Tharp, we've seen it with so many musicians over the Mm -hmm. years that this conflict festers and becomes anger, and then you take out the anger on maybe the people you love the most or the people you don't love the most, but they're the ones 
closest to you. The relationship between Marvin's dad and his mom wasn't good. The relationship between the father and the sons wasn't good. Everything I've read tells me that it was what you would call toxic or acidic living situation. And that's the backdrop against which Marvin Gaye launched himself to the world to become one of the greatest pop stars, certainly one of the absolutely greatest singers of all time. Without a doubt. And as a kid, he used to have dreams or visions that at some point he would be a singer. He was gifted. He learned piano by ear in the church as a child. He could hear the notes and play them. He started singing in the church choirs at a very young age. And the weird thing about the relationship, which needs to be mentioned at least, is the fact that Marvin Sr. had such a big ego, was such a narcissist that he felt that he was competing with his son for his wife's love and couldn't differentiate husband love versus mother love. I don't know, man. As well as the other issues, we'll which get we'll to talk him to again in those. later in the story. But I say let's get to the music that we all fell in love with from a young man who was drawn to the music. And as soon as it seemed like he got into uh, singing regularly or with any recognition or positive reinforcement, he, he took to it like the fish taken to the water. It was just where he should be, what he should be. He played drums, he played piano, he sure. sang. Kid we was a natural. This. We talked about this, uh, we touched on it briefly, we were talking about the Funk Brothers yep. and the Motown episode, and he gets credit for that because when we fast forward a little in the story, there he is in Detroit, and that's kind of how he got his foot in the door mm-hmm. in, the, in Motor City there yep. at the Hitsville, USA. Can't wait to get into that Motown aspect of it because it's so fascinating how he worked with Barry Gordy to change his style and become who he was. But before they would meet, he drops out of school, joins the U.S. Air Force, and that's like 1956. He's a kid. I can't even imagine him being in the military. He just, his personality does not seem like the type that would uh, feel comfortable in his own skin doing military. And you would be correct, my dear Marcus, because what happens is he gets sick of it and he fakes a mental illness, it says, and he got himself discharged, basically. And he he wasn't following orders. So they just kind of said, okay, you're not for us. And out he goes, okay? Now, once he's back on the street and living life, he forms a group called the Marquis with his friend Reese Palmer. Uh, They're in the D.C. area because that's where they grew up and that kind of stuff. And that's kind of where they got their start. They also picked up the attentions of one Bo Diddley, who uh, helped them to get signed to OK. Remember OK? We were talking about that in the blues episodes, the Robert Johnson episodes about OK Records, OKEH. So they signed there. He tried to get them on the chess, but it wasn't working, I guess because it was probably style points. And they do a song, which Bo Diddley wrote, and it failed and they got dropped. But that was his first dip into the waters of being in the uh, recording industry. Now, you remember the Moonglows? They were like a real popular stand-up singing group in their day. Yeah, kind of doo Yeah. I remember them. I don't remember a lot about them. I know that they were one of the uh, groups that we would here. Harvey Fuqua. He that was like a huge. compadre, a godfather for people in the business. Well, he kind of recruited them to be part of the Moon Glows moving forward. He changed the name to Harvey and the New uh, Moon Glows and uh, moved them to Chicago, which I didn't know that Marvin had spent time in Chicago. And I guess the chess connection was a natural there. And then he uh, recorded his first lead vocal at Chess Records, Mama Lucy. That, see, now this is something that I wouldn't have learned or known about Marvin Gaye unless we were doing the podcast. And and that's why we like bringing it back to you guys, the things like this that we find out along the way. Yeah, so he did that, and he also did, I didn't know, some vocal work on Chuck Berry records, including his version of Back in the USA. Of course, that's yeah. the original version, though. But I thought all that was cool background on where he was before he, Barry and, uh, of course, Anna, uh, 
and that's a whole other part of the story here on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. I wonder if there are any other songs during that time period that he sang background vocals on that we don't know about, that nobody knows about, that are probably just songs in the chess catalog that he did vocals on during that time period that just weren't I'm recorded. Gonna go f- I'm going to go find that database. That's something we could do a podcast about. Just all the we have to do who chess played records, what yeah. on who played what on what for chess records. That would be fun. A lot of digging. It took us a year, but we finally got to do the Marvin Gaye episode that we've been talking since our first sit down. So maybe uh, maybe that one will happen in the second year here <laughs> yeah. on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. Oh, did we mention that this is the first podcast of our second full year? No. How about that? That's awesome. I'm more interested in talking about Marvin. Me too. So the group breaks up and then there it is. The Motor City. He moves to Detroit. He signed with a label called Tri-Fi Records that I never heard of. I played some drums because he was a good drummer, too. And uh, he was playing at a, like a Christmas party at Barry Gordy's house. And that's where they met. That's where, I don't know if you met Anna that night, but that's where they met. And uh, that's how they connected. And the story of Barry Gordy working with Marvin Gaye to change him from a jazz singer to a soul singer is absolutely wonderful. Barry Gordy he, touches on it in the he, Motown documentary. He took documentary. what Marvin was doing and saying, okay, I got what you got. Good melody, da-da-da-da-da. But try this. Try and like do these like vocal inflections that he could crush and that was gordy's strength from a songwriting perspective i think you know being able to be part producer even when he was writing adding those little vocal fills and knowing where to put the vocal fills to keep the beat going to keep you moving your feet and tapping your toes and that was barry's strength and to be able to convert a guy who wanted to be the frank sinatra of detroit into this unbelievable singer and that was about to change any minute because as soon as Barry got his eyes and ears on Marvin Gaye, he knew that he wanted them for his labels. So he worked out a deal with Harvey and uh, Harvey didn't want to give up the whole piece that he had, so he kept a little piece for himself. Smart move by him. I would say yes. That's vision. And that's how he got over to Motown and he got signed to Tamla, actually, and that's where he began his uh, long, unbelievably successful run on uh, Tamla Records with the Motown family. He wrote some magnificent songs during his time at Motown. Motown, some incredible songs, not only for himself, but for other musicians as well. And he became one of the ultimate interpreters of the song machine that they had in the Motown family, the Holland Dozier Hollands and everybody else. Yeah, Ashford and Simpson wrote a lot of the duets. Yes, and that's something I wanted to talk about when we get a little further down the line about the the involvement of duets and how he changed things for those kind of records early on, I would say, in the the progression of Motown. And from what we had uh, seen in the Motown documentary, documentary and read during research a lot of these duets came from people singing together on buses yeah. during their traveling on the chitlin circuit now here's the thing they had the tour bus the motown tour bus yeah. the review that would go on tour they'd have mm-hmm. maybe they had two because they had a lot of people but they would go out and they would hang around together and so they'd be singing on the bus they'd be singing in the hotel rooms yeah. there was music around everywhere and there was always somebody willing to be a collaborator well when he gets to tamla records where he's going to make his first record that's where the subject of the letter E comes into play in his name. Somebody must have said something. He got ribbed about being gay all the time. Are yeah, you because gay? of his name. You... I can imagine. But oh, those maybe were some of the things. Maybe it wasn't to unique to the eighties. So. Maybe it's unique to all time zones. But people would say stuff like dumb stuff like yeah, that, and stupid things. So he, yeah, that sounds like a good idea because he was probably fucking sick of it by yeah. then too. So they add the E, and then they start moving forward on what would be his first record for Tamla. Let your conscience be your guide in May of 61. Let your conscience 
Yes, as far as the E in the name, another reason why is because he was so ashamed of his father, and there were a lot of questions about his father's quirks, too, so he wanted to further separate him. He knew where he was coming from, but he knew where he was coming from, but he wasn't so sure about his father, and so it irked him more than it might others. And for as much as he despised his father, and for as much as he was embarrassed and shamed by his father, he still did everything he could to protect him because of his deep, deep belief in Jesus and the Lord. And that was Marvin Jr. Yeah. And that conflict tore him apart forever. I think it did at times because he saw things from the man who instilled that in him that weren't in keeping with the teachings. And we'll just leave it there because we don't want to, we could do a whole podcast about religion and its effect in this world, but I don't think people would like us very much. That's not a podcast for this. This is rock <laughs> and roll. <laughs> so we're going down the road here and he hits the, with the solo single in his first album too, The Soulful Moods of Marvin Gaye, follow shortly after that it doesn't go so well so he's doing some session work too uh for the miracles and the marvelettes and uh, worked with jimmy reed for five dollars which would have been 43 whole dollars he got paid for that session uh, with 2019 dollars they says here on that so he's doing stuff like that because so far it's not going so well but he keeps at it keeps his nose to the grindstone keeps writing songs keeps playing with people. writing songs yes that seems to be like the thing inside the whole Motown Hitsville circle. You know, writing songs. Somebody's writing a song. Hey, I heard someone's down the hall writing a song. Somebody's running in and helping to add. All the time, it's like it was happening all around them. While it had this factory atmosphere, it didn't have a factory vibe because people were working together, not really competing. They wanted to write the best songs possible. You got to look at the whole social strata and change that was going on for real in black America in those years, 1961, 62. They were the things, the things were happening. They weren't like talking about it down the line. Things were happening. And that's what the, uh, they kind of plugged into as far as the energy with Motown. So in 62, he finally gets a hit. Co-writes, the Marvelettes hit Beachwood 45789 and follows that up with a solo hit on Stubborn Kind of Fellow, uh, released in September of 62. And that gets up to number eight on the R&B chart and actually gets in the top 50 on the Billboard Hall 102. That's pretty good for a new kid. I can only imagine the, not the competition, but the fact that Motown was putting out so much music, it was probably somewhat of a challenge sometimes for these artists to break through as new artists because you had so many songs and so many musicians like The Temptations and bands like that releasing songs as well. If you weren't the priority, it probably was a harder time to get those songs. But the thing is, you know, because remember the argument in the Motown, the Hitsville special where uh, Smokey and Barry are arguing about who recorded Grapevine first? Yeah. They had to call the person who was like their right-hand lady at, at Motown to get the answer. I believe $100 exchanged hands over that. And the yeah, thing is, uh, the songs were done, but that didn't mean that they couldn't be redone by another artist. That's the difference between the era of the early 60s, mid-60s, and say later in the 70s. Well, with I Heard It Through the Grapevine, they did it with Marvin, but they didn't release it until after it maxed out for Gladys Knight in the Pit.
correct you are, sir. Timing is everything in this business, they would say. We've discussed this in previous episodes yeah. where sometimes labels would release two or three different versions of a song. Like in two years, they would do it six months apart, eight months apart after they've risen, peaked, and dropped and then have somebody else do it. You know what that proves to me or one of my theories proves is that a good song or a great song is evergreen and can be redone that way. And it's been proven through the years. You look at some of the songs that have dozens or hundreds of versions of them, like Yesterday or something like that by the Beatles. So Louie Louie. There's a million examples because people like to make their own music out of a song they love. And that's what we're talking about with Marvin Gaye, songs that we love. After they do the review, that's when he starts doing the duets with Kim Weston. It takes two. Oh, what a great song. I was listening to that it on the way two, up. It takes two, baby. It takes two. It's, a, it's like a loving and passionate imploring of the other person. When I hear that song, I can only imagine the two of them just sitting there so close looking at each other into their eyes holding each other and singing. And on stage even, too, you know? Oh, I bet it was so sexy to watch on stage. And in the Motown documentary, when Marvin started first singing with Motown, some of the backup singers that sang with him were like, God, we love singing with Marvin, but it was so hard to concentrate because he was so nice to look at. And that ah! voice, that voice and him being so nice to look at made it really hard for the women to concentrate at times. He had that kind of a power with his voice and his charisma. He had that thing. I'm sure that that thing was also uh, had a, a power over a certain portion of the male audience as well. Let's I would not be that, surprised. Right? Charisma's charisma, and it hits everybody. But It Takes Two comes along. Just take two. It's his first big hit with Kim Weston doing a duet, and he would continue to work with her and Ashford and Simpson, who become players in the Motown songwriting circle around this time, and they would go on to write a very thick songbook. Let's just put it that way. Huge. Then he hooks up with the great Tammy Terrell, and they have a string of hits like Ain't No Mountain High Enough, uh, Your Precious Love, Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing, Baby. Uh, I'm telling getting you. getting goosebumps. It's one of the saddest stories, though, because it was uh, an on-record love affair. These two sang together like peanut butter and jelly together in your sandwich. It was just so smooth and delicious, right? Listen, baby. Ain't no mountain high. Ain't no valley low. Ain't no river wide enough, baby. If you need me, call me. No matter where you are. No matter how far. Don't worry, baby. Just call my name. I'll be there in a hurry. Then she takes ill on stage, collapses in Marvin's arms in 1967, October of 67. I can't even imagine. It's like that scene from Moulin Rouge. You ever see the scene where she collapses in, uh, say, yes. time collapses in Moulin Rouge? It immediately comes to mind, right? Diagnosis isn't good. It's uh, brain cancer, malignant tumor. And uh, I guess it was a year and a half, two years later, she would pass away yeah. from that. And it ended her performing career. But think about the moments that those two shared at the 
mic on stage or in a studio. Pretty special stuff in the history of rock and roll. Did those two stay platonic or did they sort of breach that line and because they had that special mojo, they did it? I don't know. Maybe the book you were showing me earlier will give us more of a guide into that or a look into that when we can catch up on an update maybe. Tell people about the book you've been reading. The book is Divided Soul, The Life of Marvin Gaye. It's by an author named David Ritz who has also written biographies on people like Aretha Franklin. He also co-wrote Sexual Healing with Marvin Gaye when Marvin Gaye was in exile in Belgium writing music and recording music but dealing with his financial issues which we'll talk about and the numbers are absolutely insane if I'm not mistaken Ray. The IRS numbers. It's kind of crazy Marcus and we'll get to that in the second half of this week's episode of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Time to stop up and have a cold one with Crooked Eye. I know when I'm thirsty I head to the heart of Hatboro and go see my friends at Crooked Eye Brewery. I want to thank Paul, Paul, and the whole gang for their support for our podcast. It's been great. Now, when you want to taste the freshest, most creative brews in the Bucksmont, you go to Crooked Eye at York Road in Montgomery, right there in the heart of Hapro. Pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014, the Crooked Eye crew makes every single night fun. Hey, and you can keep up with the live entertainment on the brewery's Facebook page. That's the best way to know what's happening there, including their free Tuesday night's Blues Jam, which is taken off. The Home Brewers Club and my partner in crime, Ray's Vinyl Nights, which are the third Wednesday of the month. That's every where the month. home brewers meet. And live music all the time, including the Crooked Eye Band. There's always good fun to be had. And a new friend to be made at Crooked Eye. And we want to thank them, as always, for their support of what we do on this crazy, imbalanced podcast. When you need a fresh, tasty brew, head to Hatboro and make it Crooked Eye. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon.
I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. And we're back on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll talking about the great Marvin Gaye. And I mentioned this earlier, but this is a podcast episode that we've talked about for a long time. And we always keep saying, and we got to do Marvin Gaye because he's such a great figure in rock and roll history and music. And in our times, he's also transformative. Someone who came from the Motown system and then became his own artist, became his own man to find his way forward, both artistically and philosophically. But it wasn't all smooth sailing. It was not. Not symptomatic, but it was consistent with his life. Very chaotic at times. We talk about him doing the duet with Kim Weston, and then be- and that led to more songs from Ashford and Simpson, one of the hot new uh, writing duos in the Hitsville parade, so to speak. And that led to songs like Ain't No Mountain High Enough, which is just an unbelievable song. Your Precious Love, Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing, Baby. And then Tragedy Strikes, just as they're really getting going, him and Tammy Terrell. She collapses in his arms on stage in Virginia in October of 67. Yeah, she was diagnosed with a brain tumor. She'd fight for a while, Marcus, two and a half years almost, and died in March of 1970. And when Marvin went to the funeral, he showed signs of depression that we talk about as taking over his life in a lot of ways. He'd have his best success right before that with his version of I Heard It Through the Grapevine finally getting its chance and being his first number one record. And and then you think about that, that's like October 68. And then fast forward to March, just a few months later, you're riding the way wave of all that and then your other half musically speaking passes away from cancer terrible tammy terrell's death impacted him profoundly you mentioned the depression which was probably there from his early days and the childhood that he went through and the the beatings that he took from his father his father beat him mercilessly when he was a child that competition for mother's love really he took it out on marvin but marvin also went through a lot of changes at this time too and started becoming more social aware and more political and going against the Motown mojo because Motown used music to unite and not be political whereas Marvin wanted to be political and unite through politics. So there was a similarity yet a major difference in philosophies. Yet the idea for his landmark song What's Going On comes from another member of the Motown family according to legend, Obi B. Benson from the Four Tops witnessed the uh, riots in Berkeley, the anti-war riots. And he must have said something describing it to everybody else and said, what's going on? It clicked with Marvin. And like you said, when Barry heard the song, he thought it was too political for us. He said, Marvin said he was going on strike until the label released the song. And he did. Yeah. And he even, this is the funny part of the story. Somewhere in there, maybe this is why, he reached out to the Detroit Lions to see if there was a spot for him on the team because he was trying to show them that I'm serious about this, Barry. And he tried out for the Detroit Lions. And eventually, well, well, he must have won the strike. That's all I'm going to say, buddy, because it does come out and it goes to number one on the R&B charts right away, stays there for a while, and he ends up getting on the Cashbox pop chart and it goes to number one for a week there and number two on the Hot 100. This is big doing, selling two million copies of his version of I Heard It Through the Grapevine. 
With the song that Barry told him was too political for Motown, he makes his point and he sells two million copies while doing it. I guess he won that argument by about two million yeah, uh, bets. To one. <laughs> what was the Vegas line? <laughs> two million to one. But this is important because it marks the turning point for Marvin spiritually. From uh, I think people who found out that he had struggled with depression and all the stuff he had to struggle with were surprised because at that point in his life he seemed so spiritually fulfilled on songs like Mercy, Mercy Me, Inner City Blues, and What's Going On. And if you look, I, I know What's Going On was definitely a big turning point, but the two albums before that were the shifting, or showing the shifting, and while it was very subtle, if you weren't paying attention, it was pretty obvious if you were close to the scene. And I'm sure conflict arose between Barry Gordy and Marvin Gaye during those years. I'd bet on it. It could have been over the direction shift, but this was really Marvin's direction. It wasn't like him trying to be Sinatra at the beginning of his career. MPG represented that. He wanted love, and he wanted world peace, and he was tired of all the conflict and the fighting and the hate, and I think he really believed that he could make a difference with his music and make people aware by singing these songs. The power of music. The power of music. It can help even a sick or broken mind to function right or better, whether you're a listener or a participant, I think. Well, you know, having won that battle with Barry, I think it kind of emboldened our hero, Marvin Gaye, and, you know, he gets these songs in him and he, he puts together another amazing album, right? So what was the bottom line on winning the argument with Barry Gordy? How about a new deal worth $1 million with Motown Records? He signed it in 1971. On the backside of what's going on, which led to a lot of really great records, including uh, Let's Get It On, which was the record that made him a superstar because it was just so jam-packed with amazing songs and passion. Every single song on the album is absolutely fantastic. And during that time, he did a soundtrack called Trouble Man for the movie Trouble Man. And then in 2019, we actually got lucky because he had a record shelved called You're the Man, which he released the single You're the Man after uh, the uh, What's Going On album, and it bombed. So he kept the album shelved. He and the label decided. we were talking about. And that's the the one that was released last year right. so it's fantastic such a good album but I could see why radio would have stayed away from it at that time but he was also very progressive soul he and Stevie Wonder were taking soul to a whole new level with the prog oh absolutely and that's something that I don't think has been talked about enough in the music industry because of their impact on soul and the prog and the shift and that may have led us to how the 70s soul and R&B developed the reason it's not as much talked about and you make your point well is because a lot of what was going on wasn't happening in the Motown circle. It was happening all outside the Motown circle. So that's why you didn't see much of this discussion in regards to the Motown records deal or or history. And we haven't really, I mean, we talked about R&B in the 70s, but we really haven't looked at the big, big picture yet. And we should on a future episode as we start our second year here on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. Holy shit. I know. I would love to get into a deep episode about progressive soul because it's something that we don't talk about. We talk about prog rock and at that time you had bands like Genesis and Roxy Music and King Crimson and Yes and all these amazing bands doing their thing. Then you have these musicians like Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye putting these albums out that are just mind-blowing and that string of albums from Marvin Gaye is fantastic. 
and it's just the artist becoming themselves. It's them yeah. growing and maturing. Yep. And in this case, maturing with a fresh sound. And yep. that's what Stevie did too. And I'm sure we'll discuss that more when we uh, have a Stevie Wonder episode here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. So everything's looking great. Everybody should be happy and everybody should be unified and moving together, but not so fast, man. You know, after signing a million dollar deal, making a hundred thousand dollars a night sometimes for performances and all that, Barry Gordy and Marvin Gaye finally came to loggerheads and parted ways over music. Really, right? I can't believe that that conflict built up so badly that they ended up splitting. It well, was... they'd already had a strike between them when he refused to put out the record, right? Yeah. But now Marvin's keeping the record to himself. And the way I understand it is somebody either was sent to or decided that they were going to liberate the tape and give it to Barry Gordy. So the tape gets in Motown's hands and they do what they think they should do to it. And I guess we're talking probably about the 16 or 24 track master tape. And Marvin just loses it. You took his unfinished album and just finished it up yourself and released it. It's like turning Phil Spector loose on Let It Be. Just not right. You don't have anything to say about that? I don't know really? what to say about that. No. I figured you'd have a shitload to say about no, that. No, I really don't have much to say about that. Well, around the same time, Marcus, we started seeing the tax problem that we were discussing earlier come into play, and uh, he went on a tour of Europe and stayed there. Moved into London, and uh, I, when I looked at this thing and I started reading up on it, and I knew that there was a tax exile period for Marvin, but I didn't realize that the situation was so dire. I mean, we're talking about he owed $4.5 million to the IRS on $13.9 million in earnings. Didn't somebody think to hold aside some cash for Uncle Sam? Yeah, who was doing his books? Well, that's something we don't have guy. time to discuss today. I know that, but that's kind of where he was around that time, and uh, so he decided to stay in Europe, and you mentioned before that he uh, moved to Belgium, and he started making new friends. And eventually, one of those friends was somebody who was at CBS Records. Him, Barry, they got together and they worked out a deal for his release from Motown Records. And the terms were never discussed because of Marvin's sensitive situation with the IRS. Yeah, and I think that was fair to do. And I think that was the right thing to do. But also, I think one of the other reasons Marvin might have considered staying in Europe at that time is because of the overwhelming music trend that was taking over America in the late 70s, that D word you had hate so much. I'm not sure what you're talking about. Uh, Rick Dees did a song about a duck that likes to... Disco. Well, it didn't stop him from getting in the studio and doing his album Midnight Love and he does the whole sessions and gets it all out and of course it's got great songs on it. He... <sighs> You know, um, biggest hit of all time. Yeah, his biggest hit of all time, Sexual Healing. It's still uh, high up on this list over here that I have, which I wanted to bring up. This is only the top 20 songs, according to how he performed on Billboard, right? Mm -hmm. It Takes Two, which we mentioned with him and Kim Weston, was really him stepping it up in the duets department. A duet with Diana Ross on You're a Special Part of Me. Was that the last song he recorded? One of, One the of them, last yes. Songs? That yeah, was, well, the duets album with her was the last duet album that he did for yeah. Motown, and then there were some other recordings, but yeah, pretty much. And then in this list, I think it's the only uh, duet with Tammy Terrell, Moonglow's song, right? If I Could Build My World Around You, going back to Harvey Fuqua. 
Oh, by the way, Pride and Joy had Martha and the Vandellas on backup vocals. I never knew that. Whoever was in the studio when they recorded, they're like, yo, we need you in the hey, uh, studio. Girls, you're on your lunch break. Come on in for a minute. We'll give you a couple bucks. Come in and do the backups. Absolutely. And that's how it worked. And if you watch the Motown documentary, you see them telling stories about that. And you know the Vandellas said, for Marvin, anything. Yeah. Oh, he's so dreamy. But then he got really on a roll there, you know. And we're going up the more popular songs now. I'll yeah. Be Doggone. It was his first million seller. And it also later got covered by Bob Weir on one of his solo records. That's where I first I'm heard I'm not it. surprised. Ain't That Peculiar, written and produced by the great Smokey Robinson. Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing, which we've spoken about. Ashford and Simpson, who, by the way, stayed together as a married couple forever during their... whole their, life. Yeah, during their, their whole way. time yeah. at Motown. So yeah. kid, that love came across in their songs, and you feel it. Marvin and Tammy delivered it, you know, and so many others would, too, later. It's like they were connected spirits, the four of them. That's the way love is, which is a remake of an Isley Brothers song was one of his biggest hits. Too. And we need to talk about them. They're one of the most important American bands of all time that we need to discuss. Honored, but overlooked in my view. Totally. And then, you know, one of his, his number 10 on this list for him is You're All I Need to Get By, another Tammy duet. And it's just, you know, one great song after another in this top 10 of this, you know, How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You, Your Precious Love, Mercy, Mercy Me, Too Busy Thinking About My Baby, Sexual Healing at number five, What's Going On? On, got to give it up, which I love. Let's get it on. And of course, the great, I heard it through the grapevine, who just another year after that, I think, would be redone by John Fogarty and CCR. And they'd have another big hit with it. And their version is just fantastic. Oh. And I don't remember this, but Cindy Lauper's What's Going On made it to number 12 in the pop charts what? in 87. Exactly. I do not remember her cover of that. And I was not listening to Cindy Lauper back then. Yeah, so sure some of the other people that covered some of his music, pretty god darn incredible Aretha Franklin Tony Orlando and Don did You're All I Need to Get By which if you watch Tony Orlando and Don in the 70s you probably saw them covered on I TV I did I'll me too because I always wanted to see him do Tie a Yellow Ribbon I like the comedy sketches my dad liked the music I didn't get the comedy sketches I was too young I wanted to see Tony <laughs> yeah. Orlando and Don Tie a Yellow Ribbon oh I wanted to see Don alright never mind you <laughs> back know, to Marvin you think that uh, everything would be you know, coming up positive and rosy for him. And uh, yet during this time, you know, he stopped doing drugs so much, I guess, when he was in Europe and he seemed to be doing better. Comes back to the States. And by then, the whole family has moved into a house that Marvin had bought for his folks in Los Angeles, you know. And, and that's where the trouble starts. Well, he wanted to take care of his mother. He was always, always super close to his mother, even though his relationship with his father was so horrible. But he was close to the rest of the family. And... Sometimes it's hard for that to outbalance the bad. Because, face it, you know how heavy the, the energy of darkness and evil can be in people's lives. Whether it's just somebody you know or somebody who's close to you makes it even worse. And they had beyond oil and water relationship. These two just never got along. And one of the things that is the seed of what happened on April 1st, 1984, was the understanding from Marvin Gaye Sr. that if any of his children should ever raise a hand to him that they should expect to die. 
Yeah, he was the don't you dare raise a hand to your father, I will kill you, dad. He really was. And with his own projections of his own insecurities because of being a crossdresser and whatever else, you said something about that whole thing that, that, that Marv's mother said. They asked her all about this. Yeah, David Ritz asked in the book Marvin's mother if she thought that Marvin Sr. was homosexual. And she said, I don't know what to think. I don't know. I don't know. And he asked Marvin, too. And Marvin said, I don't even want to think about it. I refuse to think about it. I'm not going to think about it. But he didn't understand as a kid why his father would dress in woman's clothes, other than the fact that he liked the softness of them. That's all he knew. And so there's things like that that a kid has to rectify in their head. Beatings that his father dished out to keep everybody in line with him brutal could have been a big part of what first makes somebody say enough already and stand up to him. And one of the things that young Marvin would not abide by was his father raising a hand to his mother. Yep. And that's that whole father-mother-son triangle thing you were talking about earlier. It's kind of weird that it should be that kind of an issue, but there it is. And that's kind of where the whole thing started the night that Marvin got shot. But there were some events leading up to it that are pretty crazy. Before that event happened, Marvin tried to commit suicide by jumping out of a speeding car and only hurt his legs. That Christmas before he was shot, he bought his dad a 38 Smith & Wesson for self-protection, which maybe was necessary, but the fact is is that it's kind of foreshadowing and if you're doing a movie script, could you write it any better, weirder? That's all I'm saying. So it comes down to that night and mom and dad are arguing and it must have gotten physical. I think that's the way I understand it. And yes, everybody says it got physical. The, the siblings who know basically have said that Marvin wasn't doing well. He had had his issues. He was feeling down and I find it really hard to characterize it that way that they did. But in essence, and this is Marvin's sister Jeannie saying it, it was death by suicide almost. Marvin knew that if he provoked his father over this, over anything, Marvin knew that if he attacked his father physically, that his father would take retribution. He even gave him the gun. And so when the fight starts and they're struggling, he gets in there because he starts hitting his father. And then he beats he, the crap out of his father down the hall. Yeah. Kicks him down the hall and downstairs. Because he's, he's finally acting up and doesn't give a shit anymore. But Jeannie's point was that he wanted to die. She mentioned jumping out of the car and all that stuff. So it's hard to put your head around that. You know, they call it suicide by cop. Sometimes people who can't just can't go on anymore. That's what they do. They provoke the police to shoot them. And cops hate it. They hate it worse than anything that they have to put up with in their job. I'll tell you that. I can't even imagine that. So <sighs> Marvin Sr. gets the gun. He goes into the room. And he just points it at Marvin and shoots. First shot was fatal. Yeah. Tore him up in the inside. And then he just put another one into him. I think at that point you're over the line and you know it. It just, I don't know. Like the world must have been spinning. In those three people's minds, the room must have been spinning with the insanity. And oh. for her to have to see it all happen. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine that. I wonder if everything, like, you know how sometimes things get into slow motion and they kind of get warped around you? I wonder if that type of a scene took place. Yeah, like you're in a time warp almost. Yeah. Or a, I can't even imagine that. Or a Star Wars movie. Well... Ambulances are called, police come, they go through the whole process, and when they put it all together, and I mean, the world just was stunned, not knowing that there was this simmering thing between him and his dad. I remember the news talking about his death, and I remember being sad about it because of his importance to me as a music lover, as a child, growing up listening to so much of his music and just being like, what? His father killed his son? That and was unheard Alberta, of. And for Alberta to have to witness the whole thing, 
in her home. It just I, the whole thing is just. It's and upsetting. for the longest time, all I ever thought about was the same thing: How can a man shoot his son like that? Not knowing what I didn't know anything about the atmosphere in the home, the history, all of that. We just saw a guy who was a great pop singer who turned to the spiritual side of life as far as the focus of his art, not knowing what his struggles were. And that's what somebody said something on social media this week. You never know when the person next to you is struggling today. That's true. So be nice always. Try that. And it's simple to do that. But back to what we're talking about. You're right, though. I mean, I had no idea. To me, as a 15, 16, 17-year-old kid when Marvin was shot, 18-year-old kid when Marvin was shot, I was still under that ideal that most of these stars had this glamorous, idyllic, perfectly happy life when the more and more you read and the more and more you learn, it was not as much that. Grass is always greener on the other side of the hedge. And you know what? That veil of that has disappeared first with the 24-hour news cycle and now with social media. Totally. Totally gone. And so people see and hear things right away that they might not have heard about ever or for weeks before. That's true. So that's what we get Mm -hmm. from Marvin Gaye. At the end, sadness. In the beginning, discovery. And in between, some of the most joyous, sweet music I've ever experienced in my life. Again, a question is, is how can these tortured souls make such sweet, beautiful, happy music when they're so tortured inside? That is one of the great mysteries that I look into every chance I get. And in every book I read about every artistic mind that I discover or come across, try to find a little something that explains that to me. And it's the quest we're on here on the podcast, bro. I think you're right. We know that he had the wonderful relationship with Kim Weston, with Tammy Terrell. He and Diana Ross had a wonderful relationship. Her song, Missing You After He Was Shot. What a beautiful Beautiful song. Beautiful song. I still listen to it every once in a while and get all emotional when I hear it because of course it reminds you of a moment in time when that song was new and the wound was raw one of the gifts of music that just keeps on giving yep and again the power of music you feel the whole gamut of emotions well we said a long time ago we were going to do an episode about a guy that we both love very much Marvin Gaye oh my god and I'm sitting here towards the end of this, still feeling like we have more to talk about. And that, I think that means that we'll be back and visiting with Marvin again before too very long here on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. I think we will. And if you have any comments about the Marvin Gaye episode, any feedback, if we missed anything, if we got anything incorrect, if there's anything that should have been filled in please let us know we love feedback we love feedback and participation and conversation all you got to do is email imbalancehistory at gmail.com you can go to our facebook page the imbalanced history of rock and roll on twitter imbalanced histo it's twitter they do what they do (laughs) we deal with it but uh yeah at imbalanced histo is the short form for imbalanced history that's what we get and uh, did you mention gmail i did mention gmail but i did not mention our website imbalancedhistory.com there's a lot of ways to reach out and touch us and we want to hear from you especially if you have some feedback on the episode we just did or any other episode that we do here on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Boy, this was fun. We got to do it again. We we'll gotta, do more. We'll do many more. And real quick, your favorite Marvin Gaye song, Can You Do It? Off the top. Just being put on the spot like this? Just being put on the spot. Mercy, mercy. Excellent. You? Grapevine. Yeah, I heard mom. it through the grapevine. If you ask me six months from now, I can guarantee it'll be a different one because <laughs> a different one will get stuck in my head. But I've been listening to a lot of Grapevine because of our previous episode, Five Favorite Rock and Roll Movie Soundtracks, where it appeared in the Big Chill, which is one of my favorite movies. Great job on that episode, That was though, so buddy. much fun. Your production on that was great. 
especially Thank that you. part about the big chill. Uh, Your era, brother. I thought the uh, Matthew McConaughey, all right, all right, all right, from Days Confused was awesome. All right, all right, all right. Where got I go? <laughs> Well, let's make a plan to revisit down the line. It only took us a year and a half to get to Marvin Gaye the first time. We'll see what we can do next time. That's going to wrap it up for this episode, brought to you by Crooked Eye Brewery. Check them out online at crookedeyebrewery.com. I'm Ray. I'm Marcus. And this has been the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.